Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to yet another episode of the Felony Friday podcast. This is your first time tuning in. This is a weekly show. We publish a new episode every single Friday, and each episode we focus on injustices in the broken criminal justice system. Now, there's a few ways that you can actually participate or contribute to Felony Friday. Number one, you can connect with us and join our online Facebook group, our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can join simply by searching Lions of Liberty Forum in the Facebook search bar. Our group will pop right up and we will add you right on. And the second way is to email me directly, felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. You can send me stories that you'd like to talk about or possible guests that you'd like to have me interview. So send away and I promise I will get back to you. Uh, Make sure also to check out the show notes for today's show. You'll be able to find them at lionsofliberty.com slash FF11. So check that out and we'll link to all the stories that we're going to talk about today. Um, Today we've had, you know, two different types of episodes so far. We've had more of an interview type show and a more conversational show where we talk about felonies trending in the news. And today we have a more conversational episode. So I'm going to bring on a co-host, one of my fellow Lions of Liberty. You've been familiar with his work. He's been a guest many times on Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. And he is almost on every single presidential debate reaction show. He holds the title of the official legal counsel of the Lions of Liberty. We call him Rico on these airwaves, which actually originates, this little-known fact, it originates from him being one-eighth Puerto Rican. So, Rico, (laughs) welcome to the Felony Friday Show. What is up, Odie? What kind words you had for me. Uh, (laughs) Co-host, I guess I've been promoted, and uh, people who have heard my work, I don't know what work I've done, but here I am. So, good to be with you. It's been some work. It's out there. I mean, I use the word work loosely, but it's uh, it's quality stuff. <laughs> That's like all manner of my work. It's all loose work, you know. <laughs> and the little known fact about me, people would uh, obviously pick right up on that when they see my white skin and blonde hair, the, my my heritage. So quite the, yeah, the irony. Uh, the eighth Puerto Rican. And it's an eighth, right? Is yeah, it's something like that. It's, I've never been able to <laughs> exactly figure out, but it's between a quarter and an eighth, so. You know, we'll go with that. That eighth is buried deep. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get started, I just wanted to kind of introduce you a little more to our listeners, give you so they get some more background on you. You are an attorney, as to be the, of course, to be the official legal counsel, you got to have the qualifications. So you are an attorney. You went to law school. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Why'd you decide to put in the three years or three plus years of misery uh, in law school and then studying for the bar? Well, uh, it's going to be a fascinating story. It basically originates back in 2002, the spring semester. I had I was a political science major in college, and I really had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Uh, my dad's a lawyer, so he's like, you know, uh, maybe just take the LSAT, see how you do, and um, you know, going to law school is is not a bad option. It's a good skill to have. So I was like, uh, I guess, whatever. Um, I didn't know what else to do. (laughs) I didn't really put any thought into what I was going to do after college at the time, which would stun you and many other people who knew my uh, fastidious lifestyle in college that I didn't really put much thought into it. But uh, 
Shocking. Really. <laughs> yeah. So went to law school, uh, took the bar exam, and became a lawyer. All good things. And the rest is history. The rest is it's history. Something. I don't know what it is. Here I am. Well, that's awesome. Well, it seems like you're enjoying what you do. I know you, I'm not going to ask you to get in the specifics of what you do, but I know you get to travel around a lot, which sounds pretty cool. So, Well, especially on days like today where I visited the fine downtown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I was at the federal building there for about an hour and went home. So got to see your fine city for a very there short you go. period that's of time. My, that's my old stomping grounds, downtown Pittsburgh. Go there many times. So always good. I'm out, out in the suburbs now. I try to avoid downtown. But yeah, it's a, it's a nice city. It, nice city it does a sure. trick. <laughs> so let's get started here. We do have a couple, four or five felonies to talk about. The first one, I assume most of our listeners have heard of, uh, sort of, I guess, the semi-famous reality reality show type star from the show Pawn Stars, Chumley, the uh, portly man from that show, recently got in a little bit of trouble. Uh, His actual name is Austin Lee Russell, and he was arrested when officers were serving a search warrant into a sexual assault investigation into him. And what happened was they show up at his door, pull out the search warrant, search his house. They found meth. They found marijuana. And they found at least one illegal gun. They don't say what type of gun it was, but so he gets arrested, gets booked, and he's out on $62,000 of bail right now pending his May 23rd court date. So I did say that there were some uh, drug charges, 19 drug possession charges. So he must have had a significant amount of meth and marijuana. Um, you know, some interesting fact about this, it seems like at least, I don't know if we should read too much into this, but his two of his Pawn Star co-stars, of course, the show is set in Las Vegas. Um, two of his co-stars have sent out some cryptic messages, phrasing it that he might be, there might be more to the story here. I'm not sure how much more there can be to a story like this. So I guess, Rico, in your professional legal opinion, do you think Chumley is screwed here? Uh, I don't think it's a good situation. Just as a little more background, when I was in law school, I I clerked for a criminal defense attorney for about three years. So I did a lot of motions. And I think the number one thing or the first thing in any situation like this is to look at the warrant and see, okay, well, one, it was for a sexual assault charge. So I kind of wonder what kind of evidence they were looking for. Were they looking for DNA? Because it doesn't say that they did any kind of testing. Uh, Were they looking for, you know, video or pictures? Because typically warrants are, you know, supposed to pretty specifically describe the area to be searched and what, you know, they're looking for. And here, you know, I looked a little bit into it. It didn't say that anything came of the sexual assault charges as of yet, or they found any evidence of that. But they, they found all these, you know, drug paraphernalia, drugs, things like that. So it, it seems like they found a whole bunch of things that they weren't looking for or shouldn't have been looking for. But, you know, when drugs are in plain sight, then, you know, it's an exception to the whole warrant requirement. But I think any lawyer that knows anything would first thing they would do is file a, a motion to suppress. And I'm saying this without really knowing much because I haven't seen the warrant. You haven't seen the police report. But, you know, the theory is, look, if the warrant was invalid, then this is all uh, the legal term would be fruit of the poisonous tree. So if the warrant's bad, any evidence is that they 
got out of that invalid warrant is thrown out. So that's really probably his only hope here. And the odds of that winning are not great because every time there is a search, a lawyer will file a motion to suppress because they know once that evidence is in, the defendant's screwed. So we'll see what happens. I'm sure the lawyer will do that and then that'll get denied and then they'll probably work out some kind of plea deal. And the other thing I thought was interesting is one of the officers reported or it was in the report that what they found was typical of like a a dealer, which I kind of was uh, a little skeptical about that report. I, I doubt he's you know, dealing drugs when he's on this big show and probably making a lot of money. He probably just had a lot because, you know, he's rich. He doesn't come off as the smartest person, though. I think it is, it's very That's possible true. he could be dealing drugs while being on this show, making a lot of money. Yeah, well, so I, I don't know. That's uh, it's possible. Truth be told, I, I've never actually watched the show. I, I see a picture of him. He doesn't look like the sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, looks can be deceiving. So, as a- <laughs> That's true. That is true. So I think that that's where he's at. Uh, I think one of the other things noted is they said, well, many of these items commonly are found with people who distribute controlled substances like plastic baggies and digital scales. Now, I don't know why he would have a digital scale if he wasn't, you know, distributing, but it's kind of ambiguous whether that was actually found or that's just an example of things that can be found that would show some kind of intent so that that is i mean i think that by itself finding a digital scale to consider that drug paraphernalia i think is kind of ridiculous well i mean it is i mean uh, whether you know that's the right interpretation but you know any judge would say oh yeah with everything around it and typically if there's a digital scale there's going to be residue on it so true true yeah and they would test for that i'm sure um, the plastic bags could you know I mean, if you got a hundred small plastic baggies, you know, in a room with a bunch of drugs and a digital scale, it, it doesn't take much to reason. Okay, well, he's weighing them, bagging them, and uh, shipping them out. So he's not in a good position. So no, he's definitely not. And um, just one thing I wanted to point out that's it's sort of, I guess, an interesting perspective I thought of on it. So, like Rico was saying. He has not been charged with a sexual assault. The warrant was to investigate for a sexual assault. And obviously, a sexual assault, that's a crime with a victim. And then he ends up getting in this deep trouble, um, really regardless of what happens with that crime with an actual victim, if he's charged or not. He gets in this heap of trouble for this victimless crime of just um, owning some substances, these uh, illegal substances. Now, I'm not condoning the use of meth. I don't think anyone should be doing meth. It's awful. But if somebody wants to do meth, I mean, I think they should be allowed to. I don't think we should be locking people up and putting them in jail for doing something as, as stupid to themselves as uh, taking some meth. And with the gun, it doesn't really say what type of gun it is or if it's something where it's just illegal in the state of Nevada or I'm not really familiar with the state of Nevada gun laws. But it's just interesting looking at it from that perspective. So this starts out, they're going after this guy for a crime with a victim and he ends up getting screwed without ever hurting anyone. Um, It's just a strange thing. So we'll move on to the next felony we have trending in the news. Um, This is a pretty weird story. Um, A Chicago man who has been charged with a felony for jamming cell phones on a train. So what happened here? Uh, This Chicago man by the name of Dennis Nickel, a 63-year-old guy, 
He is accused of jamming mobile cell phone signals aboard the Red Line train in Chicago. And I, one of the uh, people they uh, got a quote from in the article says that this has been happening on this particular train um, at the same time of day in the morning since 2014. So that's quite a while, um, at least a year and a half or, or maybe almost two years. And he was actually warned about something very similar to this back in 2009. And, you know, somebody might be asking, I was asking when I read this too, how the heck would you jam, um, you know, someone's cell phone signal or a whole train of people's cell phone signals? And why would you do that? I guess first question is why. His reason why was he didn't like people talking on their cell phones when he was riding on the train. So he decided to jam the entire train. And how did he do it? He ordered some sort of contraption from overseas. They did a pretty horrible job describing it in this article. Uh, they said it's a, uh, a thing that has a bunch of antennas sticking out, like five antennas sticking out that he bought from overseas. So I'm not really sure how he did it, but he obviously had a little, little bit of experience in this before. Now, the first thing I thought about when I read this story was the tragedy of the commons. You have public transportation. You have a guy that doesn't want people talking on a cell phone, so he's jamming their signals. A solution maybe would be if it's privatized, a uh, operator might choose to have a section of the train where there's no cell phones. Um, that's just the first thing I thought about. Was there anything that jumped out to you in this story, Rico? <laughs> well, what I thought kind of along those lines is it looked like he ordered this device from overseas. So presumably he spent a pretty decent amount of money on it. And I don't particularly like hearing people talk on their phones on trains either. I've, I've had the privilege of riding those uh, Chicago trains before. They're a real pleasure. But why didn't he just buy a pair of like noise-canceling headphones? Uh, it seemed to maybe make his uh, wipe a little bit easier and not infringe upon the rights of these other people. Like you did mention, it looked like he had been charged with a misdemeanor for the same type of thing back in 2009. And so this would presumably be at least a second offense here. And I, I don't know how he did this discreetly because from the picture I saw that it, it was pretty big. It's not like something that he could just, you know, have in his coat pocket and no one would notice. So you'd think people would be like, what the hell is that thing? You're, and what are you doing? You know, they would be questioning him all the time. And the range of the device is apparently 12 meters. At least that's what one of the comments said. So. You know, I can't really condone the use of this thing, even though it, I find some of the people, you know, quite annoying as as he apparently did too. But uh, you know, that's not the proper recourse. So, yeah, definitely cannot condone the use of it. I mean, if he was, you know, in his own vehicle or his own house, and he wanted, if he wanted to jam people's cell phones in his own house if they were over yeah. for a party, <laughs> then sure, that's fine. But yeah, going out and even if it's public transportation, you know, that's the tragedy of the commons. People yeah. think they, you know own that transportation and can do as they wish. Um, yeah, you still, you cannot infringe on people's uh, privacy or ability to communicate like and that. Especially now, you know, in, in the mornings or, you know, as a, a parent you are, you know, sometimes things happen. You need to get in contact uh, with the, the school, the daycare, you know, your wife. So just this guy saying, oh, no, you're not allowed to use your phone when people have become relying on the ability to communicate at the snap of a finger you know it's just yeah it's not right i i mean that's a really great point i mean there's yeah the personal aspect i mean there could have been you know personal tragedies in people's lives that this you know phone um this phone jamming had an impact on there also could have been business things people could have lost 
who knows how much right. money because they weren't able to uh, you know talk about a deal that they were working on. So yeah, there's huge ramifications here. It's a good and, point. And this guy could have done things the old-fashioned way and just asked people to keep it down. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me, he's an old man. Could you know? Could you talk a little softer or you know get used to it? You ride the train every day. Things are going to happen. So <laughs> it's life, buddy. It it doesn't always work in your favor. He could have just shushed him. <laughs> he didn't. Um, one more thing I want to talk about before we move on to playing our uh, the fastest growing game show and podcasting. Is this a crime? Or should anyone do time? Uh, you pointed out to me before we started today, and I wasn't aware of this, but I'll turn it over to you. So Nancy Reagan just passed away, and you had a note on uh, Nancy Reagan's influence on the war on drug branding. I can't believe you don't remember this. One, you're not that much younger than me. I, I what, three or four years, but... Yeah, I think three years. When I was little, and I think most people my age, 35 or older, will remember Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campaign, where she got on TV and said, you know, just say no to drugs. And along those lines, I don't know if you remember the uh, frying pan with the egg. Do you remember this commercial? Oh, yeah, I I remember that. that This this is your brain on drugs. So that was kind of along the same lines. But, you know, the message of just say no to drugs, I mean, I... You can't really say, oh, you know, like drugs or you don't. I mean, it's not a horrible message to be sending. The, the kids don't use drugs. Okay, whatever. But along those lines, Reagan really escalated the war on drugs from where I think it started under Nixon, the quote unquote war on drugs. And it really escalated under Reagan. And you got to think, okay, with Nancy being the kind of the motherly face of the anti-drug campaign, or, you know, she did have some role and just reading some stories it, it did seem like there was a a skyrocketing public concern over drugs corresponding with the beginning of that campaign now R- reagan i think his first year would have been 1980 so one stat i saw was the number of people behind or incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses rose there was 50,000 in 1980 and by 1997, that went all the way up to 400,000. So that's eight times wow. the amount in 17 years, starting with the increased uh, crackdown under Reagan and carried out, you know, continued under Bush, who was the vice president at the time. Reagan also blocked access to syringes and, and other things that could have helped reduce the spread of HIV because of this whole zero tolerance to drugs. So especially with the AIDS epidemic in the eighties, that seemed to serve no good. Um, and one other thing, kind of along those lines, I don't know if you remember former LA police chief, Daryl Gates, but he was the one who started dare. And that was back in the eighties, kind of along the same time frame. And, and one just terrific quote from Daryl Gates is that, he believed that casual drug users should be taken out and shot. So that um, <laughs> seems to kind of tie all together with the just the drug hysteria that started in the 80s with Nancy Reagan as a face. There was increased penalties. The whole, I think it was a 10 to 1 crack to cocaine sentencing ratio started in the 80s. So it was just a very bad period, I think, for the anti-drug campaign or the, uh, the really the effects it had on, on people during that period of time and really continuing to today. 
Yeah, it's really um, – we always talk about when someone dies, you talk about the positive legacies. And it's it's tough to talk about really the negative things that people have done. And, yeah, the war on drugs, that is just a, a horrible, horrible thing that Nancy Reagan was a big part of that I'd really forgotten about how big a part she was of it. So thanks for bringing that up. Well, where would I be if I didn't want to you know, trample all over the grave of a, a nice woman like Nancy Reagan, who I'm sure did many <laughs> wonderful things too. But uh, She did. She not, did. You know – in my mind, one of her better moments or policies. (laughs) So now we're going to move on and play, uh, is this a crime and should anyone do time? What I'll do is I'll explain a, something that is a crime. Someone has been arrested or charged with something. I'll explain it to Rico and I will ask him, is this a crime and should anyone do time? So our first story, we, uh, this is in Pike's peak, um, a gentleman by the name of Alan Chapman. He was woken up, uh, by someone beating the heck out of his door It's a direct quote from him. And in the police report, he says that he was concerned for his safety. So he answered the door with a loaded pistol to find a Pikes Peak Regional Building Department inspector at his door. Now, according to the arrest affidavit, um, Chapman kept his gun pointed down, did not point it at the inspector and obviously was asking him to leave. Now, the inspector claims, which this is not in in the report, that Chapman pointed the gun directly at his chest. Now, it's sort of interesting, that aspect of it, because he was still arrested for not even pointing the gun at him, just for opening the door with a loaded gun pointed down at the ground, even though the inspector said that that the gun was pointed at him. Now, this is not necessarily in the nicest area where this occurred. Um, Just in January of this past year, uh, five men reportedly rang the doorbell of a uh, nearby house before forcing their way inside and injuring a person living there. Um, And then in February of this year, a woman rang the doorbell of an in-home daycare and three armed suspects forced their way in and ransacked the home. So this is an area where there's sort of a history of this stuff happening. Now, someone can be charged. His charge was it was a menacing felony charge. So someone can be charged with menacing for knowingly putting another person in fear of being hurt, even if a weapon isn't used. And once a weapon becomes in, involved, it's a felony. So I guess, you know, he was threatening this guy for coming to his door. And just because he was holding the weapon, it became a felony. So Rico, knowing everything you know here and uh, seeing this article, is this a crime? And should this guy do time? Based upon, you know, the what you've said, I would say, no, it's not a crime. And he certainly should not do time. One of the other stats that I, I saw was just in this year alone, it said there had, in that area, there had been five home invasions and 242 burglaries. Um, so you're almost crazy to not have a gun in that area with that level of crime. Answering the door, being startled, and you know, knowing the surrounding circumstances with that area, the history of violence, I don't think this guy did anything unreasonable. Now, it, it said that he kept the the gun in his waistband and uh, he didn't point it. If after opening the door, he learned that the guy was from the regional building department and he just didn't like him. And then he pointed the gun at him and told him, get the hell away from me. I mean, okay, you can't be doing something like that, but that's not in the report. And I don't think there's going to be any evidence to the contrary coming out unless there's some kind of surveillance camera, but you'd think they would already have reviewed that if there was. So I'm guessing nothing ever comes of this. These charges will probably be dropped or uh, reduced significantly because if it's just 
one guy's word against another. And the police report already says he didn't brandish the weapon at the guy. You know, why are they charging him? That's kind of what I'm wondering. Yeah, I, I don't know if uh, they have something against this guy or if he has a past history. It didn't go, didn't go into any of that. But yeah, I definitely agree with you. I mean, if he didn't point the gun at him, which the police report says he did not, then I don't see what the issue is. Um, I mean, even it's probably polite if you do answer the door with a gun and you recognize the person is not a threat, you should, you know, should probably take the gun out and unload it and put it down. You shouldn't keep it in plain view in a threatening way. I'm not sure if that by itself should be a crime, though, but it sounds like the way it's written on the books that that is a crime. If you do this, the other thing that I read in the article where the guy or the building department told the paper, the workers don't are, you know, they try to knock on the homeowner's doors before starting their inspection, but it's not required. And I'm thinking, what kind of crazy policy is it for your building department to not necessarily knock on a door before entering? No, there are certain tenant rights. You know, you should be given at least reasonable notice before any kind of inspection. But if these people think they can just walk into a home, why would the person living there not be like, what the hell is going on? Someone comes into your house with no notice. You have no idea what's going on. There's all of these home invasions and burglaries going on. Are, are these people trying to get shot? What the hell are they thinking? Amazing. Maybe it's the home inspectors committing the burglars. <laughs> yeah. I don't it's some kind of crazy crime syndicate. They're like, we're making out like bandits here. Mm, conspiracy. It's <laughs> a good point. Okay, so next one. We traveled to Brooklyn here, a Brooklyn IHOP. There's a, a waiter at a Brooklyn IHOP, William F. Powell, a 27-year-old waiter. Uh, he was arrested for allegedly giving out $3,000 in free beverages to customers over a seven-month period. Now, IHOP does not serve alcohol. All they pretty much serve is juice and water and coffee, I think. Maybe some other little more pricey drinks, but probably most of your drinks are under $5. So that is a, a lot of free drinks to be giving out over a seven-month period. But the charges he's facing, he's facing charges of grand larceny, criminal possession of stolen property, and... Uh, and petty larceny. Now, the defendant is has been defiant so far, and he told investigators, this is a direct quote, I'm a modern-day Robin Hood. I'm not stealing. I'm serving the ones in need. I take from the rich and give to the poor. What's the big deal? I've been doing this since I started here. This is a guy who's already been charged, and he's saying this. So yeah. not the smartest knife in the drawer. So what, what do you think okay. about this? Well, there's a whole lot of things going on. I don't think you need to be a lawyer to figure out the guy that's been charged is one of the bigger idiots that you'll ever read about. Well, if you're being charged with this, don't go making statements like that, admitting guilt and saying, what the hell is the problem? I've been doing this the whole time. Just shut your mouth, buddy, okay? Come on. Use a little bit of common sense. Uh, the other thing... <laughs> I kind of question the math here because after I read that story, I'm thinking $3,000 in six months, that seems like pretty high figure for an IHOP. And another article broke it down. They said he, he would have had to have given out 1,441 IHOP splashes, which I guess are the high ticket item at IHOP costing $2.29, which would have been about 10 a day during this whole period of time, which Seems improbable. Then I questioned, okay, well, how did they get to this number of 3,000? And apparently the owner noticed that this guy's drink 
orders were 6% where everyone else was a 17 to 20%. So he watched old footage. So I guess we're led to believe that the owner watched six months worth of back videotape over all this guy's shift. So how many hours over six months did this guy work? So this, this guy, the owner's apparently reviewing thousands of hours of video footage to find out this guy gave away over a thousand orange juices, which I don't really believe. So why not just fire the guy? I'm sure the owner wasted $3,000 of his own time yeah. charging to IHOP. Watching Clearly it wasn't that big of a problem because it took him six months to catch on. So <laughs> I, I don't really believe the whole $3,000 thing. And it just is kind of a further backstory uh, for me. I'm, kind of guilty of the same crime in a sense. Uh, Back in college during the summer, I I worked as an illustrious beer guy at the uh, Cleveland Indians games. And if, you know, we saw someone we knew, someone that thought was cool, you know, whatever, a pretty girl, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can have this beer. And they charge us for every beer, but a little known secret, you can say, oh, uh," you go back, you say, oh, I kicked over those beers by accident. They're like, all right, here's a couple extra. Rico, you kicked over 15 beers. <laughs> well, sometimes I was a little tipsy when I went into work. You know, it's all good. So I don't really think this is that unusual of a situation. Well, I mean, it to this extent, it's pretty unusual. But I think the proper recourse would be, all right, buddy, one, you're fired. And if he needs to be charged with a crime or, or something, just suspend any kind of judgment based upon reimbursement. But this guy, this guy, he was not costing the owner $3,000. So I think they're figuring, okay, well, if they bought this many drinks, I would have got $3,000. But he was probably just giving away a few drinks here and there. And so the guy's not really out the money. He's out the cost of purchasing that product in the first place, which is not the price what people buy it at. So the owner's probably out like 500 bucks in truth or something, you know, a much less a lower figure. Make the guy pay some figure back, drop the matter, let's be on our way. The whole thing's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, this is small potatoes. And I think more than anything, this highlights how stupid this waiter is for talking about it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how he really helped people in need by giving away some free orange juices. I think he was just probably dumb or maybe looking for higher tips. But the whole matter, to charge this guy with a felony, come on. Why are we screwing this guy over for the rest of his life. He's going to have a felony on his record. Where is he going to work for this crime, so to speak? And certainly the owner's out some money and he should be reimbursed in some fashion. But to give this guy a felony is ridiculous. He can work for the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers hire felons, which I talked about in a previous Felony Friday column, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash Felony Friday. I'm sure they'll be uh, contacting him shortly to get his resume. I'm sure they will be. Well, thank you, Rico, for coming on the show. Uh, That's all we have today. Um, You're always welcome back. It's always great to get a perspective of someone who works with the law. Uh, Well, thank you for having me. It was a good time. It went by quick, and it's just a pleasure to not have to talk about any debates today. (laughs) It certainly is, isn't it? Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, it is. uh, Just to let people behind the curtain, today we're recording this on the second Super Tuesday so we'll end this podcast and probably watch Donald Trump effectively end the election. Yeah, it's looking like that, but I suppose that's a discussion for another time. Indeed, indeed. Okay. 
I'm going to wrap up the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, please, if you enjoy this show, consider sharing it. Probably the easiest way to do that. Uh, you can follow the Lines of Liberty on Facebook or Twitter and just share it with your networks. Um, and if you haven't yet, please consider subscribing to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. And remember that when you subscribe to Lions of Liberty podcast, we have three episodes per week. So you get our Monday, Wednesday episodes, and also you get Felony Friday in your feed delivered to you. So please try to do that. You can also check out every single podcast we have in the archive. We are approaching 200 episodes of the Lions of Liberty podcast, not including uh, the 11 Felony Friday episodes. You can find all those old episodes in the podcast archive at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to Rico for joining me today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.